Amen. Awesome. Uh, we are in, where are we? We are in Acts chapter 20, verse 1 through 21, verse 16. And if that sounds like a lot, it is. Acts 20, verse 1 through Acts 21, verse 16. We're going to be in 52 verses today. It's a marathon passage, and actually it's a bit of a marathon story uh, that we find in this passage. It's not only long, we see Paul does a lot in it. Let's call this passage Paul's Ministry Marathon. That's what we're seeing here. Now, when I lived in Chicago, um, I lived on the fifth floor of a 20-story building, and um, right outside the end of my hallway, uh, the Chicago Marathon would come by. Every year, thousands of people would run, run right, by the, right by my dorm room. And now the modern marathon it's, is what we see all around the world. There's marathons in every major city all around the world. But the modern marathon was inspired by a legend of something that happened in 490 BC when Greece won a battle, a decisive battle, the Battle of Marathon, against the Persians in Greece. When, when they won that battle, a man run, ran 26.2 miles from Marathon to Athens to declare the good news, Niki, victory! And then he fell down dead. And we decided that we should do that too. <laughs> For whatever reason, we, this guy runs himself to death and then we say, I'm in. Uh, let's do that. In fact, if you want to have a brush with death, you can go to Athens, November 13th of this year, and you can run from Marathon to Athens in the world's oldest marathon. It's still something that we do today. And when we look at this passage today... I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead here. When we think about marathons today, few people die in marathons today. But if somebody came to the, the committee that was organizing a marathon and said, hey, I've got an idea about how we can make this marathon a little bit easier, they would say, that's not the point, right? Because marathons are extreme by nature. That's the point of a marathon. The point of a marathon is to push yourself to your absolute limit to leave it all out there on the pavement to prove that you can do that 26.2-mile run. And so in Acts chapter 20 and 21, we're going to see Paul's ministry marathon. And in many ways, the story of what Paul does here, it actually mirrors that original marathon story. Because in it, we're going to see that Paul travels a really far distance. Part of it is actually in Greece. We're also going to see that he goes on this marathon in order to bear the good news of a great victory. We're also going to see that this extreme labor is going to require him to pour everything out. And finally, we will see that even though it doesn't happen in this passage, ultimately, when he has finished his race, it will cost him his life. Paul's ministry marathon in this passage is what we're going to see. And so uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Acts chapter 20. I'm going to invite Olivia up here now, uh, because today Olivia is going to read all of it in one go. Uh, it's about eight minutes long. <laughs> and so because of that, I'm going to ask her to do the reading for me. But as I read this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have up here on the screen both maps during the travel section of the passage and words during the teaching uh, portion of the passage. And as we go, I want you to have your ears open for something specific. Have your ears open for how does Paul pour himself out for the mission of God? How do we see Paul pay incredible price to take the message of Jesus Christ to people? Where does he commit radical sacrifice for this mission? So keep your eyes open for that. Let me pray very briefly, 
And then Olivia's going to read it. Lord, open our eyes and our ears to hear and to understand this story and to recognize in it where Paul radically submits and, and pours himself out for the advance of your gospel. Shape us through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 21 through 21:16. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece, also called Achaia, and there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychias and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Metelen. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from the house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God.
And now, behold, I know that none of you, none among you, whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own, pre- his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go, to Jeru- not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Telemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and delivers him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge.
Thanks, Liv. All right. You thought you needed a vacation. This is a long journey. That was a long passage. Well done. (laughs) Pushing through it. But what do we know about Paul? As we look at what he did, the journey that he went on, and as you paid attention to how much he poured out here, what do we know about Paul? What do we know about the beginning of Paul's journey? What we know is that he persecuted the church. He was going from town to town seeking out Christians to throw them in prison and and to kill them until... On the road, he meets Jesus in a vision. Jesus comes to him, and he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He strikes him blind. He sends sends him into the town called Damascus, where he then sends um, up. Sorry, who does he send? Ananias, yes. He sends Ananias to him, and he asks Ananias to open up his, his eyes. And Ananias says to God, God, I've, I've heard about this guy. I don't really know if I want to associate with him where God says this to him. Listen really closely. He says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's what's told Paul or about Paul at the very beginning of all this. Number one, you're going to bear witness to the name of Jesus Christ. Amongst kings, amongst uh, Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, slave, free. And number two, you will suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. You will carry the name of Jesus Christ. You will suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And honestly, that's a pretty good description of everything we've seen about Paul in the entirety of the book of Acts. It's a fitting summary. His ministry is fruitful, but it's not necessarily fun. This is a hard work that he's doing. And that's what we see here in this passage. As he's going, he is laboring, he is toiling in order to do his mission. And so I wonder, as you are listening, what was Paul willing to give for the sake of the mission of God in this passage? What did you notice? What price was Paul willing to pay in order to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ? In what ways did you see Paul pour himself out for Christ's mission? Because I saw about three main ways. Three main ways that Paul was willing to pour himself out for the work that he had been given, for the mission of God. So let's start with the first one, and probably the most obvious one, extensive travel. The first way that Paul poured himself out for the sake of the mission of God was through extensive travel. Now, uh, this summer, Olivia and I and the kids, we're going to be flying to Denver. We're going to be driving up into the mountains we're going to be visiting Olivia's uh, side of the family. Um, and we're excited for the trip. We're excited to uh, get a little time away. But what we're not excited about is traveling with kids uh, on an airplane. I love my kids. I like them more with legroom. It's going to be a, a tough trip for us. But at the same time, when you think about the trip that we're, we're going to be taking, uh, we're going to be leaving Alton after breakfast. And we're going to be there with our family before dinner. <laughs> It's going to take about six and a half hours. We're going to fly through Midway. We're going to grumble about it the whole time, but eventually we're going to land there, and we're going to be happy that we're with our family. It's going to be worth it. Now, in these 52 verses, Paul travels the exact same number of miles as between here and Denver. He travels 2,000 miles, but he's not going to get there in one day. He's not going to take a plane. He does not have frequent flyer miles. Rather, he is going to go by sea on a wooden boat, 
powered by wind. He's going to go by foot on land that entire journey. Paul didn't have kids with him, but even so, I think he had it a little bit harder than, than we have it when we travel today. It's a blessing. And the thing is also, this is Paul's third trip. He's been on these journeys before. This is only 2,000 miles of about the 10,000 miles that he's going to travel over the entirety of his, of his missionary time. And so he's fully aware of what this trip is going to cost him. He's fully aware of the labor and the toil of travel. And by the time he stops going on these missionary journeys, the only thing that's going to stop him is chains. Apparently, the toil of travel was worth it for Paul to fulfill the mission of God because family is what's motivating us to go to Colorado 2,000 miles away. But the mission of Christ is what's motivating Paul to go on that equally long but exponentially more difficult journey. And so that's the first way we see Paul pour out extensive travel. He travels, he comes to towns, and when he comes to towns, even though he's done with his traveling, he is not resting. <laughs> because the first way we see him pour out is through extensive travel. The second way we see him pour out is through endless teaching. Extensive travel, number one. Number two, endless teaching. There's a famous preacher from the early uh, 19th century, um, I guess 20th century, the 1900s, uh, named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And you might know the name. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London. And he started his time there at that church about the same time as the Blitz. Bombs were falling on, on London. And there was one morning... He was praying, getting ready for, for his sermon. And uh, as he's praying, a bomb drops just outside the church. It doesn't hit the church, but it's really close. Deafening sound. Plaster falling from the ceiling. Windows rattling. Everybody a little bit panicked. But Martin Lloyd-Jones, he keeps his eyes closed. <laughs> keeps his head down. He doesn't stop his prayer. Rather, he pauses. He gives a minute for people to collect themselves. And then he continues to pray. He finishes his prayer. He dusts off his notes, and he preaches. Now, that's like every pastor's favorite story. I think, I think I've heard that story from so many different pastors. It's, it's, uh, because what it tr communicates to us is that even though something very serious was happening just outside the church— Something even more serious was happening inside the church. The message of Jesus Christ was about to be proclaimed. And so for Martin Lloyd-Jones, it wasn't worth pausing. He had serious work to do there in the pulpit in that church. Now, there's many good deeds we can do for Christ, but the, the work that was given to Paul was to teach, to proclaim this message, the message of Jesus Christ. And we see that he is committed to this endless endless teaching. And one way we see that in this passage is from this story of what happens in Troas. Paul is teaching late into the night. He's planning to leave the next morning, so rather than getting a good night's sleep, he decides, no, I'm going to teach as long as I possibly can before I leave the next day. And he's teaching so long that he literally preaches Eutychus to death. Now, it's sort of his, his uh, I'm, I'm not as good a preacher as Paul, I'm sure, but I've never done that, so I've got that one. But maybe Eutychus shouldn't have been sitting in the window. Maybe that's on him. But when Eutychus falls out the window, Paul goes down, heals him, brings him back up, 
And what do we read next? Check this out. He conversed with them a long time until daybreak and then departed. <laughs> That's some church service. <laughs> he, he's teaching till midnight. A guy dies. He brings him back and he goes, I'm not stopping. And he just continues to preach until the morning. He's just like Martin Lloyd-Jones who didn't let a bomb stop him from the serious business of teaching. Paul didn't let the death of Eutychus stop him from tirelessly teaching through the night. And this isn't unique for Paul. In fact, this is Paul's MO. As he goes on these journeys, he continues to teach tirelessly no matter where he is. We know about that also just from the report that he gives about his time in Ephesus. This is what he says. I don't have it up here, but he says, you know how I lived among you. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the content. Verse 31, he says, For three years I did not cease, night and day, <laughs> to admonish every one of you with tears. Endless, tireless, inexhaustible teaching. That's what Paul was pouring out. And even here, he calls these Ephesian elders to him so that he continued to teach him, continue to pour into them. And guys, when I come home after teaching on a Sunday morning, I crash on my couch, and the only thing that gets me up is coffee and the responsibility to take care of my kids. <laughs> like, I'm exhausted after teaching, and, uh, I th because teaching is exhausting. <laughs> but Paul seemingly inexhaustible as he pours himself out for this important work of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. So what's the first way? Extensive travel. Number two, endless teaching. But just like the original marathon, this marathon in Greece, the greatest cost comes at the end of the marathon. Number one, extensive travel. Number two, endless teaching. Number three, eventual death. Eventual death. Because it's clear where this is headed. We see it a couple times. Paul knows what's coming. He says in this passage, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city the, that imprisonment and affliction await me. He doesn't know what's coming down the road. But what he does know is that he continue, as he continues to go, he's going to continue to suffer. And it also seems that the suffering that's coming is going to be greater than the suffering that came before. Why do I say that? Well, because he says here to the Ephesian elders that none of you, um, none among you, or, sorry, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. This is it for their relationship. It's going to come to an end. The brothers in Tyre, they understand it, it seems, because they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And the Christians in Caesarea also, through this prophet Agabus, who we've actually seen before, he says that the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of of the Gentiles. Guys, I think that Paul knows that something worse is coming. He's being warned at the very least suffering. The Holy Spirit promises that, but even more death. 
the end of my ministry, the end of my marathon. But he says this boldly still in verse 24 of chapter 20. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. A little bit later, he'll say, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He knows where this is going, and he's cool with it. So apparently, the toil of travel is worth it for the sake of the mission of God. The, the toil of teaching is worth, it, is worth it for the sake of fulfilling the mission of God. And apparently, even death for Paul, is worth it for the sake of fulfilling the mission of God. Now, I, I see Paul's example there, and it's admirable. Uh, we see that, and we think, yeah, I want to, I would like to be able to be that confident, to be that willing to just put my life on the line for the sake of the gospel. But I think the, the question that we should be asking, but even before we ask how do we act like that, is why do we act like that? Why is it that Paul can truly say that he is willing to pour out his time and his energy in the toil of travel for the sake of the gospel? That he's willing to pour out his time and energy in the labor of teaching? That he's willing even to die? The answer for why he is able to do that is because Paul was willing to toil and labor and even die because Paul had already died. A long time ago. Let me say that again. The reason that he was willing to pour out his time, his labor, and teaching, and travel, and even eventually in death, is because Paul had already died a long time ago. Paul was willing to pour out his life until they took his life because he had long since given away his life. Paul's life was dead, and he, has, he was living in Christ. Now, this passage, it doesn't tell us all that. It doesn't tell us about where he finds the strength to endure, even in the, sake, in, the, in the face of death. But even though this passage doesn't tell us, his letters do. And there's one place in his letters, specifically 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. I'll put it up here. That show us most clearly why he is willing to, to continue to do his mission even in the face of death. This is what it says. I'm going to read it slowly twice, okay? So pay close attention. He says, For the love of Christ controls us. What does that mean? For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. Man, you could write a book on that. Let me, let me read it again. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
The key factor that controls Paul's life, that controls Paul's choices, his decisions, is not love of self, what's best for him in his life, what, what he wants and what he needs. But it's the love of Christ that controls him. What's best for Christ and his mission and his kingdom? What does he want from me? What has he called me to? That's extreme. It's so extreme that Paul uses the word death. He calls it death because we die to our own lives. We die to our own desires, our own choices, our own control. And if Paul had a PR department, if he had a marketing team that was helping him choose his words for how he would present himself, the letters that he wrote, I think they would encourage him to pick a different word. Paul, death? Really? I mean, that's not all that appealing. How about surrender? (laughs) How about lay down your life? Because they'd be accurate too. Those are accurate ways to describe what what Paul is calling us to do. But no, he sticks with death, and frankly, he could do worse. He could say, take up your cross, like Jesus said, specifying not only death, but a torturous, terrible way of death. In fact, he actually does. Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live uh, in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Guys, it's the same message that we have died. Saying, how could I not give of myself for the one who gave himself for me? How could I not choose to die for the one who died for me? How could I not take up my cross and follow him for the one who took up his cross for me? Paul shows us what living the dead life looks like in this passage. That we have died with Christ and we live with him. So now that we get the why, (laughs) how, How do we die? How do we live the dead life? How do we die to the belief that we are in charge of all this, that we should be in charge of our lives? How do we die to our desires for comfort? How do we die so that we may say with Paul in 2 Timothy 4-7 that I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith? Well, we have to understand that when we talk about dying for Christ, we shouldn't hear a whip crack. This, isn't a, oh, this is, should, doesn't come down as, a, as, a, as a, a fist being slammed on the table. You must die. After all, it's not the power of God that calls us to die. It's the love of Christ that controls us. It's his love that compels us to die. It's his love that makes death sound like a good thing. The love of Christ controls us. And guys, that sounds counterintuitive. That love would draw us to this kind of death. But I think the question I want to ask us is, doesn't all love lead to death? Doesn't all love actually call us in a way to to die to our own control, to die to our own choices, to die to life being the way that we might naturally choose for it to be? We think about romantic love, think about parental love, even think about friendship love. 
When you marry somebody or even just dating somebody, when you enter into a loving relationship with them, what you do in that moment is you lose your freedom. You lose the freedom to do with your evenings what you choose to do with your evenings. Uh, If you're married, to spend your money the way that you choose to spend your money. When you marry somebody or even when you enter into a close relationship with somebody, it comes with death, death of control, death of your, 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 your choices. Marital love and romantic love comes with death, but so does parental love. When I became a parent, I lost the comfort of a full night's sleep. Uh, I lost the privilege, the joy of having crumb-free baseboards on my car. Where do the crumbs come from? That's what I want to know about parenting. But we die to the way we want to because of the love that we have for these kids. It's even true of of friendship-type love. I would love to never help anyone move ever again. (laughs) Um, But because of my love for my friends, if they move, I will be there. I've died to sleeping in on Saturday morning out of love for them. Every loving relationship you have requires you to die in some way. But it is worth it. If you want to never die to your, your, your desires, your comforts, your, your choices, having things your way, you will be alone. <laughs> so we let the love of Christ lead us to pour out our life on mission. It is the love of Christ that compels us to die and to join with him in what he has called us to do. You will lose your time, control over your time, your finances. You might lose your reputation. You might lose your comfort, your security, your control. But the mission of Christ will require you to die. And the greater love that you have for him, the more it will make sense to you that it is worth it. (laughs) So do you want to learn how do we live the dead life? We start by loving Christ more deeply pushing into him, delighting in him, worshiping in him, growing in him through seeking him and savoring him, coming into fellowship with his people, delighting in the life that we get to live together. Reading your Bible, praying, all of these typical ways called the ordinary means of grace, Christian Mexican food as we call it, as we come to love him more and more and more and more deeply. If you're going to live for Christ, look to Christ. And join him joyfully in his mission as you grow in his love. For the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross, Hebrews 12. Now for the joy that is set before us, let's take up ours, Matthew chapter 6. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the um, life that you've called us to, the life of death, is hard And this is really building off of what we were seeing last week. It's hard. It's difficult. When we're rightly understanding what you've called us to, it it naturally makes us want to pause and to draw back. God, is it worth it to, to lay down my life, to die? Lord, I pray that we would continually learn not only 
that we can, but that if we do, we will find joy in the process of laying down our lives. Heavenly Father, help us surrender, help us lay down our lives, help us die, so that we can join you fully in the mission that you've called us to do. We praise you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.